good evening. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. I wonder how those words sit with you tonight. As an encouragement? A helpful challenge? A seemingly unattainable ideal? Perhaps some of us are in a place where we readily feel encouraged by Paul's exhortation. You might notice, for example, if you ask our own beloved Nancy Hodge right now how her retirement is going, that she will light up. <laughs> she tells you that she's enjoying an extended time with the Lord every morning. And he's showing her all kinds of places that she can quietly minister to others. What a joy. And what a gift to the rest of us. And there are times and seasons where we can't help but be joyful, like when we get to welcome Benedict today in the presence of family and friends. Every baby does that. For others of us tonight, a genuine sense of joy might not feel quite so accessible. In fact, I bet I can guess at least five things besides joy that someone here is feeling tonight. How about harried? Anxious? Exhausted? If you're a parent, that one probably applies. You might be feeling deeply lonely or even in grief. Any sermon on joy is going to face this difficulty because joy, to tell you the truth, is a feeling. Like, I wish I could gloss this for you. Like, uh, you know, love is a verb. It's not a feeling. It's an action. You can choose to do it. But I actually can't give you any fancy word studies to nuance what this means. When the Bible says rejoice, and it says it so often, there are multiple words for it in both Greek and Hebrew. Like, it, it actually means be glad. Take pleasure, enjoy, exult. In fact, if you kind of trace a lot of those words back to their most primitive origin in the languages, they often refer to a physical expression of joy. It's like to leap, to spin, to dance, to jump for joy. To make things more complicated for me, Paul uses the strongest possible language to emphasize how important he thinks this is. Like, I say it again, rejoice. I'm working with Ruth and her Latin, and so in grammar, that's what we call an imperative, a command, if you will. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but like, the Bible commands you to rejoice. It's not one of the Ten Commandments, but the Bible is certainly not shy about claiming that joy is the distinguishing mark of God's people. So you'll find it all over the Psalms. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Jesus himself tells us to rejoice and be exceedingly glad. That's when you're being persecuted, by the way. For great is your reward in heaven. And our friend James, brethren and sisters, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And that's as much James as I'm going to give you tonight, I promise. So before you check out, because you're sure that this message is really not for you, maybe you shouldn't even have come tonight, I want to assure you what I'm not going to try to tell you. I'm not going to tell you that you need to ignore the very real things in the world that are grieving you. You don't have to put on your happy face to come to church. 
You don't even have to have yourself a merry little Christmas. Joy is a deeper matter in our hearts, and it challenges us to ask, okay, um, how can we obey this command? Isn't it beyond our conscious control to, like, feel what we may not actually feel? How can God ask that as us, of us? See, if we're coming to God with an assumption, it might be even unconscious, that what God wants us to do is just, like, be good, okay? Uh, put on a good front. Maybe that, that offensive behavior that you know you need to change, just, just do it. Just change it already. Like, if we can do all that, we could make ourselves acceptable to God, right? If that's what we're coming with, the command to be joyful is going to shake that up a bit. Because God is saying, actually, I'm inviting you to experience a heart that's so transformed, so intimate with me, that you actually can rejoice even while the world seems to be falling apart around you. The Apostle Paul gives us one example of a life that was so transformed. As he tells us in Philippians, hey, go ahead, look at me, imitate me. Everything you've seen in me, that's what you need to do. So when Paul wrote that letter, you'd never guess, if, but he was in prison. And yet he uses the words joy or rejoice 16 times in four chapters. So it's called the letter of joy. It was also Paul who taught us that joy is a fruit of the Spirit. So that means we can't summon it up, right? Um, fake kind of happy face feelings are to joy as the ornaments you hang on a tree are to the fruit that grows out of a tree. Joy grows in us as we release like our clenched, controlling, gotta do it grasp and open up our hearts to the spirit. So I have a suggestion for you. Maybe if you don't actually feel like jumping and dancing for joy tonight, maybe you could begin with just opening your hands, loosening up limbs and faces you've been holding tight, and just breathing deeply in God's presence. In fact, I'm going to give you a moment just to try that. Holy Spirit, as we open ourselves to you, plant a seed of joy in our hearts tonight. Last week, we spoke of love and lit the second candle and looked at how Joseph's story showed us love. Now that we've cleared a little space in our hearts, I want to invite you to attend to another example from Scripture. Because when it comes to this responding to God with joy, even when your world is going topsy-turvy, there's hardly a better model than Mary of Nazareth. So, imagine for a minute again that you're in Mary's place. This angel has just brought news that is going to completely upend all your plans for your life. You are chosen to be the mother of the Messiah by the power of the Holy Spirit. The angel leaves. What are you going to do next? Let's find out how Mary responded. I'm going to be reading 
from the first chapter of Luke, starting with verse 39. And now that you've gotten all relaxed, I'll have you stand if you're able as we listen to and receive God's word. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. Why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. This is the word of the Lord. You can sit. Father, as we look at Mary's song of praise, help us to grasp what it can mean for us. Help us to reflect on the things you have done and to say yes to the places you are calling us and to anticipate the fullness of your kingdom. By your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I want to consider for you three aspects of Mary's example that I do think can open us up to a genuine experience of joy. Like Paul, Mary looks back over the history of God's dealings with Israel, and in faith she grasps that her own story is taken up as part of this epic of redemption. And then in the moment of God's call, she responds with this obedient yes, embracing all that God has for her. And finally, looking forward, she waits with a joyful anticipation to see God fulfill his promise and reveal his salvation to the world. So first, what God has done in Mary's life and in yours. One of the first things that you'll notice about Mary's song that might strike you, is this emphasis on like giving praise for what God has done. Everything is in the past tense. The angels and like the magi and all that glitter and drama and like even Jesus and his mighty miracles, that's all still 
off in her future. But right now, Mary is praising God for something he's already accomplished. It's as if this great reversal that she sees God doing is already a reality. He has done great things. I think Mary has some insight of a prophet here in that she sees that what God has already done in her, this little secret thing that she knows, the eternal word, condescending to become this helpless, growing human baby, that actually has fundamentally changed the world as she knows it. The second striking thing about her song of praise is that it very closely resembles another passage in 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. It's known as Hannah's song in the second chapter of 1 Samuel. So here's a story from Israel's history that I think Mary would have, must have known. And in it, Hannah, a childless woman, just pours out her sorrow before the Lord. And she's shamed by the priest who overhears her, who's like, the only explanation he can come up with for this demonstrative behavior is she must be drunk. <laughs> but God, who hears the prayer of the destitute, listens to Hannah. And she gives birth to a son, who is Samuel, the prophet. So Hannah has this prophetic song of praise, and it strikes all the same notes as Mary's. If you go back and look at it, I won't read it all now, but she begins, my heart rejoices in the Lord. She says, there is no one holy like the Lord. And then those who are full now hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. The Lord will guide the feet of his faithful servants. It's like this is Hannah, Redux. Is Mary just not terribly creative? Well, no, it's not that. I think this dependence on Hannah's song actually tells us something about Mary and, and kind of helps us to understand this past tense orientation. See, Mary is an interpreter of the story of Israel as she knows it. We don't know just exactly how much time passes between the angel's visit and her arrival with Elizabeth. Luke certainly makes it sound like she hops up that very minute. The story we heard last week about Joseph finding out, that may have happened in between. We're not sure. At the very least, she had a journey of several days to get to Judea where Elizabeth lived. And Mary has been meditating on what just happened to her. And so she's come to understand it now in terms of who God is, what God has promised, like how God habitually acts. This is the God who just surprises, choosing the humble, the oppressed, and the poor over the high and mighty. God takes a young, unmarried Jewish woman from a backwater town on the fringes of Roman Palestine, like that's someone who by every measure of importance in her society barely registers. And that's who God chooses to be the vessel for his coming to his people. So Mary's basically saying, in other words, hey, look, he's doing it again. That thing he does, he's doing it in and for and through me. So this first clue that I think Mary gives us to joy is to look backward over your story. Like Mary, let's soak in the story of God's salvation. Let's relish its grand arc, like creation, fall, redemption, new creation. See, through stories, we'll learn 
But the God who calls to us is one who has remembered to be merciful. And then when we can recognize the signature of God's mercy, we can go looking for it in our own stories as well. Can you recall some ways God has blessed you? Called you? Forgiven you? Empowered you? Where has he brought you up to this point? Because whether your parents brought you as a baby for dedication or baptism, and you had the blessing of growing up in a Christian family, or whether you heard the good news later in life, God was calling you since your very first breath and drawing you to himself. Let your mind dwell on these things. Like, what a joy to realize you are not measured by the world's definition of success. You might not want to be one of the high and mighty, actually, if Mary's song is true. <laughs> Your little life with its, like, unexpected twists and turns isn't just a meaningless drop in this ocean of human experience. It's like, it's part of what God is doing in the world. Now, to find the second clue to joy, I actually want to step back just a verse or two from where we first picked up in the reading. Because everything in this passage depends on what came right before, which is Mary's yes. She says to the angel, after asking a few very good questions, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me just as you have said. It's pretty amazing. Because what God asked of Mary was like really awesome and not an easy thing. Think about what was at stake for her. Basically, everything that was most precious for a young woman in her time and place, her reputation, her about-to-be-celebrated marriage, which is basically all her security and provision for the rest of her life, her bodily safety and comfort. Please remember, this is a time without prenatal care or epidurals. It's well said that Mary is like the first Christian the first to name Jesus, her Savior. The first to believe that her son is the fulfillment of God's promise. The first to lay down her right to herself. Just put herself at the service of God's mission. I really do believe that no matter what grief or difficulties or challenges you're going through, there is a deep joy in saying yes to God. Don't get me wrong. I do not mean like you should rush out of here tonight and like sell all your possessions or say, oh, um, yes, I'm going to become a missionary. Remember that God needs people in every corner of the world and every vocation and every walk of life just to live humbly before him. And the yes that you find that you can whisper to God, you know, it might be the tiniest of yeses. That's okay. If you make room for it, that yes, can t even if it's just a tiny seed, can grow within you. A book that's been really helpful to me, especially in my years as a mom, is Kathleen Norris's Acedia and Me. She writes about something called acedia. It's one of the seven deadly sins. You may know it as sloth, which doesn't really mean much to most of us. It's a very rich concept, actually. 
like a dryness, a dullness, an inertia, like a reluctance to pray or sing or really do much of anything. And it's a rejection of life and love. Like, acedia can be related to what we know as physical depression, but Nora sees it as a spiritual malaise. It's like a resignation in the face of life's apparent meaninglessness, a hardening of your heart to God's good gifts, and it can have its root in just the need to recoil and shut off your heart to the inevitable pain that will find you if you dare to love. Acedia can equally afflict those who want to believe and those who do not. <laughs> I found that um, C.S. Lewis said this of his youthful atheist period. He said, I maintained that God did not exist. I was very angry with God for not existing. I was equally angry with him for creating a world. Norris battles her acedia with prayer. And especially useful, she says, is the discipline of praying the Psalms. But she also says that if you can't even pray, getting out of bed and making the bed and hanging up some laundry will do as a first step. Because even the most ritual, daily, mundane acts of service, like creating a little order from the chaos, making a little beauty, can signify a courageous yes in the face of every reason to hold the contrary. We may or may not experience a visitation as sudden and life-changing as that angel's message to Mary. Probably not. But what word from God is stirring within you, asking to be heard? What's the thing your heart knows you need more of. What very small surrender might be calling your name? Like it might be sharing Jesus with someone more boldly than you have before now. It might be getting out of the bed and making it and folding the laundry and feeding your children. It might be picking up the phone, calling a therapist and saying, I'm ready to work on that thing that's holding me back and I know I need some help. It might be choosing to move and nourish your body in ways that let God's love flow through your whole being. I don't know what yes the Spirit is calling you to right now, but I suspect you do. And I wish for you that deep, unshakable joy of knowing that God is moving in your life, bringing you into a place of greater peace and healing and freedom. Finally, and third, Mary shows us there can be joy in our time of waiting. Like Emily said, we're waiting for the fullness and we're not quite seeing all of it yet. Whether Mary spoke first with Joseph and had that assurance that he would still accept her as his wife, or whether she rushed off to Elizabeth and only came back to face the judgment of her neighbors in Nazareth three months later, when her pregnancy was impossible to hide. In either case, Mary had entered a time of profound waiting. 
Okay, every woman here who has been pregnant can tell you just how long that nine months can feel, right? And anyone who's accompanied them through it has a little sense of it too. It's a humbling time, right? In which you can feel your body change, sometimes on a day-to-day -day basis, with no initiative on your part. This life is like growing and unfolding according to its own mysterious rules that God somehow wrote into nature, which break every other rule, like complexity increasing, uniqueness unfolding, all that awesomeness is happening, and you basically have nothing to do with it. All you can do is wait. With increasing urgency, I may add, as the time for birth draws near. Like Mary, we are also in an in-between time. We're celebrating the way God has broken into our world in Jesus, and yet we're waiting for his kingdom to come in its fullness. As we look back and we find our place in the story, and as we say yes to seeing what God is doing in our lives at this moment, at the same time, we are yearning for the day when death will finally and fully be defeated and every tear wiped away. I think our children could teach us in this season. This time of year especially, they know what it means to wait with anticipation, am I right? And maybe their delight on Christmas morning Instead of like a competition with the meaning of Christmas, could you see it as a sort of icon, a very rough picture of what we're going to feel when our desire is at last fulfilled for perfect communion with the Lord in whose presence is fullness of joy? I mentioned C.S. Lewis because one notion that I find helpful here is his idea, kind of an interesting one, of joy as an experience, which he says is sharply distinguished from both happiness and pleasure. If you read Lewis's spiritual autobiography, his journey was really driven by his pursuit of this feeling. He describes it as a sort of pang of desire or an ache for something beyond his present experience. That he felt even before he heard the gospel, he felt it as a child, and as a young man, he looked for it in art and literature, but found those unsatisfying. And not until he became a Christian did he start to have a framework for understanding this. And then he decided joy was a sort of hint of heaven. It always has an edge, just a little pang. Even while we experience something of God, at the same time we know it's not quite all that there is. There's a little more. Because we were made for this divine intimacy. And we can just taste it, but never fully fulfill it in this world. He said, all joy reminds. There's never a possession. Always a desire for something longer ago or further away or still about to be. I think that at this time of year, it can be especially helpful to hang on to that aspect of joy. Christmas can be a difficult time to find true joy, and not least because our culture has it thoroughly confused with happiness and pleasure. Like for 24 days now, by my count, we have been bombarded with messages of holiday cheer. Deck the halls, have fun, enjoy, be jolly, have yourself that merry little Christmas. And as adults, we might recoil just a little bit because we know that what we really want for Christmas can't be put under a tree a functional family that loves each other. 
freedom from our addictions, healing from past hurts, rest. I actually think the difficulty we have with Christmas, it's not that there's anything wrong with celebration. Hear me right here. Quite the contrary, celebration is a type of spiritual discipline. I think it's just that we've loaded this season and even this one day with an expectation far beyond what it can bear. Picture for a second the perfect Christmas. What comes to your mind? Yeah, you can actually talk back. What comes to mind? Sleep, okay. But you know that's not going to (laughs) happen. No arguing, wouldn't that be wonderful? Like harmonious family relationships, I'll take it. What else? Little house on the prairie, okay. (laughs) Gratitude and joy for even the smallest gift, excitement, yes? Good, what else? The whole family being together. Beloved traditions, yes? Good food and beautiful music and probably festive clothes. Pajamas, okay, comfy clothes, cozy clothes, I love it. Festivity, feelings of gratitude and peace. You probably see a house sort of like suffused with light and warmth and all of those things. Wow. That's, that's like a picture that contains pretty much all of our deepest longings, right? We're loading it with security and prosperity and relationships and physical comfort and deep spiritual meaning. If we think a holiday can do all of that, we are bound to be disappointed. We expect Christmas to bring us a slice of heaven on earth. And it does, of course. But not in the way that our popular anthems and secular icons suggest. This time of year can be more painful than any other precisely because that image and our reality just might not match. So, here you go. Here is your permission to forget trying to create an ideal Christmas. Go ahead and let go of any frantic striving to recreate that postcard image because the truth is that we're living in a time of waiting. We're celebrating the now of God's presence with us and we yearn in the not yet of life in a creation which, Paul says, still groans with labor pains, eagerly awaiting its full redemption. And so like birth, it's going to be messy. Embrace the mess. There's nothing smug or comfortable or sentimental about joy. A taste of joy is strong stuff, able to sustain us through the deepest sorrows. So if nothing I've said yet brings it home for you, as a final thought, I just want you to consider that Mary's son, Jesus, I think knew joy in some of these very same ways. Jesus knew who he was and how his story would fulfill God's promise to Israel. We can see that even from his boyhood, and I think increasingly through his life. And then we see Jesus, yes, even at the moment it cost him the most 
in great agony, he said yes to the Father, and on that yes hinged our salvation. And then the writer of Hebrews tells us that it was for the joy laid out for him that Jesus was even able to endure the agony of the cross. What would that joy be? You could say it was to be seated down at the right hand of the Father, but I also think, well, Jesus eternally knew communion with the Father, so I don't think it is too much of a stretch to say that Jesus' joy is to have fulfilled the Father's will and made it possible for us to enter into that presence. In a hymn that has certain resonances with Mary's song, Psalm 149 says, The Lord takes delight in his people. He will beautify his afflicted ones with salvation. Like There is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous who do not need to repent. Yeah, I think God actually rejoices to make us his people. That doesn't mean there's something like special or unique or outstanding or deserving about us, mind you, right? This isn't about like who we are. It's about what God is and what God does. Like Mary, we are humble and poor and really quite insignificant. And yet it's his delight to bring us his salvation. So this Christmas, May you take joy in meditating on that salvation and finding your place in that story. May you find joy in saying a little yes to what God is doing in your life. May you taste joy as you eagerly long for eternal life in God's presence. Father, It's beyond us to summon any of this up. We are desperate for you. Will you make us your people who look different to the world in the midst of our lists and our errands, our hospitality, our singing, our rapping, our decorating, everything we have to do this week. Will you fill our hearts with your joy? Through Jesus, our Savior. Amen.